Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 43, verses 15 to 34, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God's Banquet of Grace. In Luke chapter 14, verses 16 and following, Jesus told a parable about a man who gave a great banquet. And by the end of the story, the servant of the rich man giving the banquet, that is the servant, was ordered into the streets and the lanes of the city, inviting the poor, the crippled, and the lame, come and feast. It's a story of overwhelming extravagance. In Revelation 19, verse 9, as the Bible describes the closing of the present age and the beginning of the age to come, when all things are made new. An angel speaks to John and says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, the story of overwhelming extravagance. The banqueting stories of the Bible remind us that our God is not miserly in his willingness to give. His table is overflowing. Indeed, even if we encounter famine in this world, the world to come will see feasting, riches, and satisfaction. Well, in our study of the life of Joseph, we come now to a time when all the pain and sorrow of the past is about to be wiped away. A fearful, despondent, dysfunctional, near-starving, and guilty group of God's chosen people are about to be seated at a table of feasting. The image is so shocking, so unexpected, so extravagant, that anyone reading this account immediately sees images of a God that has more than enough a God who gives grace to people who deserve none. We're studying the life of Joseph, and we now come to the second meeting of Joseph and his brothers. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. They only know that he is the second most powerful ruler in Egypt and that he holds them in suspicion for spying. They know they might have to explain how they left Egypt last time with with sacks filled with grain that they had not paid for but they're desperate. They must feed their starving family, and they have their brother Benjamin with them, and if something should occur to him, they know that they will bring their father to the grave in sorrow, and that's the drama. It's not a drama of men expecting to be blessed. Rather, it's a drama of men who are hoping they can escape Egypt with their lives. Here is tension and guilt and anticipation. Uh, They have arrived in Egypt with a present for the ruler of the land, and perhaps they can appease him and end up cleared of suspicion. It's It's a long shot, but that's the best they can hope for. So I'm reading Genesis 43, verses 15 to 18. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. Well, the brothers, of course, don't realize why they have been taken to Joseph's house. But in truth, the reason for it is Joseph has looked them over and he assumes he knows which one of them is Benjamin. Benjamin then would have been 21 years old and Joseph had not seen him since he was a baby. This is for Joseph a very emotional moment. He yearns, he longs for 
Every passion within him is to be with Benjamin, his brother. Send them to my house, he says. My dealings with these men will not be in the place where business is normally done. But the brothers were probably aware that high Egyptian officials often kept dungeons in their homes. If the Lord of Egypt may decide to make them personal slaves to serve in his vast land holdings, they are at his home with his guards and without recourse. One Bible teacher commented that for the guilty, even hospitality and kindness seems suspicious, even ominous. Who would have thought the Lord of Egypt had brought them there so that he might bless them? There's a parallel here that might speak to you and I. Once we become aware of our sins before God, we can't imagine that God has designs to bless us and to lift the yoke from our shoulders and to invite us to feast in his banqueting hall with with great joy. We can't imagine grace. And so we spend our lives running from God. This is truly the picture of these brothers huddled together in terror, not knowing that grace and not vengeance is awaiting them there. Verses 19 to 22. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. So notice that at this point, the brothers don't know if anyone at all has noticed the missing money. Discretion and wisdom might have dictated that they produce the money the minute they're asked and show that they also have brought additional money. They have come to make matters right but their terror has now reached a level that they can't wait. They assume this must be about the money, and they're now desperate. And furthermore, they're confessing to the mess regarding the money to the steward of the house. Well, he's not the accountant, and he's not the prosecutor, and he's not an armed guard, nor someone who might overpower the ten of them. He is one man entrusted to overseeing the daily running of the house of the Lord of Egypt. But they don't seem to notice that fact. But then it turns out the steward does know everything about the money. And then for the first time since coming to Egypt, they encounter kindness, concern, grace. Indeed, the response of the steward is kinder than seems humanly possible. Verses 23 to 25. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Everything's all right, he says. Peace to you. And then, almost inexplicably, he says, it was God who put money back into your bags. Now, of course, we know that it was Joseph who did it. And we might think that the steward has been instructed by Joseph to say exactly what he says, and that is no doubt the case. So let's ask the question, is the steward lying? Well, let's go back to Genesis 42, back to the time when the brothers find their own money in one of their sacks. Genesis 42 verse 28 says, And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back here in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? (laughs) The brothers knew that it was God who had done this. And at that time, they were convinced that God had done that because of their sin. 
And God had so arranged that their money be returned in order that in the end of the day, they might be condemned. But here now, Joseph Stewart agrees to this extent. It was God who did it. I mean, Joseph may have been used by the unseen hand of God in order to do this, but but now it turns out that God was not going to condemn them. Instead, we find out God was going to give them riches in the midst of a famine, grace in the midst of their overwhelming guilt, and love where they had only expected wrath. And with that, in order to demonstrate mercy, he brings Simeon out. No, no, he hasn't been sold into slavery. He's still there. Indeed, we have to assume that he's absolutely no worse for wear. He looks like he's been cared for while they were gone, and that must have been surprising to them. And then if that wasn't enough, a servant rushes forward. Imagine this. He takes care of the brother's animals. And then another servant comes out, and he brings water to wash their feet. And then, stunningly, well, they're told they're going to eat with the Lord of the land on that day. I have no doubt that when they enter the house of the ruler of Egypt, the brothers would never have seen such lavish surroundings before. Servants awaited them to make sure that they were comfortable. The trappings of riches were everywhere. I can only imagine their hushed voices as the 11 brothers are looking around. Their mouths must have been open and their eyes filled with wonder, perhaps not knowing how to act in in just such a lavish setting. Grace is like that, where once we expected that we had only deserved and earned the condemnation of God. Indeed, that's true. But instead of giving condemnation, God opens up to us his great banqueting hall. And that hall will be revealed to us in eternity. And he says, come and enjoy a meal with Jesus, my only son. That's an amazing story, but it is the story of our salvation. It is the story of grace. Psalms of the Seasons is our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada scripture calendar. And it reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of this creation and the beauty of God's Word. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Newfeld is placed within the calendar, encouraging each of us to open up our Bibles every day. This is a practice and discipline critical to creating a steadfast foundation for faith. Use your calendar as a reminder to engage in the Bible every day and use the Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in 2020. This resource is filled with encouragement and it's yours for free. Just ask. Simply request your copy today and perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Either way, call us for your free calendar at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at Back to the Bible. Have you ever wondered what the wedding supper of the Lamb will actually be like? Grace is more lavish than we had ever imagined. I hope you know that. When Paul compared our present sufferings to the glory to be revealed, our suffering, says Paul, even though it is very deep and awful, will seem compared to the weight of glory to be something that is light in comparison. Grace, you know, is astonishingly lavish. The brothers have been told to prepare themselves. 
The Lord of the land will come to eat with them at noon, and they will be his guests. But of course, they still wonder whether matters will turn out badly, and so they prepare the gifts that they have brought. They're still involved in a vain attempt to appease the man. They don't know that their gifts are nothing, nothing at all compared to his riches. So let's continue to read this astonishing account, Genesis 43, verses 26 to 30. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. You know, we've been examining the roller coaster of emotions that the 11 brothers would have felt at this time, but now we see the emotions are far stronger for Joseph. He makes no mention of appreciation for the gifts the brothers have brought him. I I have to wonder whether at this point, whether the, the brothers have now come to realize that the gift they have brought is but a small thing compared to the lavish surroundings of this house. But for Joseph, his real concern is elsewhere. He begins asking about his father, their father. You know, he can't know if he's alive or well, but now he finds out that he's not only alive, but he is well. And then his next order of business is with his only full brother, Benjamin. As his eyes rest on him, and remember, at this time, all conversation is going on through an interpreter. And Joseph communicates, God be gracious to you, my son. And no doubt Benjamin would have bowed to him. And at this point, all the brothers have been bowing continually. But if they had paid attention, well, they should have noticed that such a statement God be gracious to you, my son. Well, it's a most un-Egyptian thing to say. It sounds so very much like what Moses would later teach the priests of Israel to say. The Lord bless you and keep you. That is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob look upon you and be gracious to you. But after uttering those words, Joseph, of course, is overwhelmed with emotion. This very thing, this wishing to bless his brothers— That's been kept from him for the last 20 years. And even now, he can't know how this encounter is going to end. He's got to get a hold of himself. He must see this matter through. Well, we come now to verses 31 to 34. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Well, several points of explanation are required to understand this passage. The first is that, given Joseph's exalted status, no one sits at his table with him. The second is the statement that none of the Egyptians sat with the Hebrews, for that would have been an abomination to them. Well, that matter is so important to understand how it was that the 400 years that Israel would then spend in Egypt would forge them as a nation and prevent them from being absorbed into the wider culture. See, while Israel was in Canaan, 
Intermarriage with the Canaanites was not just possible, it was welcomed. But Egypt had a very different culture. The Egyptians held themselves as vastly superior to all other people groups. And I've said it before, and I can't emphasize it enough. Without the Egyptian experience, which prevented Israel from being absorbed into the wider culture, Israel could not have become the unique people of God. And so for that reason, it's almost inexplicable to the brothers that they're not only in the room eating with the Lord of Egypt, but they're amazingly being brought food from his table, given directly to them. You have to imagine here, not a dining room, but a vast banqueting hall. And you'd also have to imagine that the food that is being served at your table reflects your status. And their status is now that they are eating food fit for a king. And it is here that Joseph acts shrewdly. Remember, he does not yet know if he can trust his brothers. And so he deliberately acts the way their father acted. He favors Benjamin and exalts him as the favorite, and then he sits back and he just watches. Will the same angry looks that he experienced years earlier now be directed towards Benjamin? Do they hate Benjamin as much as they once hated him? Will they despise the grace of the banqueting hall, and will they be overcome by a spirit of envy and the ugly attitudes of hatred that they had exhibited in times past? What happens now? And so Joseph watches and he waits. All our text then says is that slowly the fears of the brothers seem to fade away. And then for a period of time, they simply stared at each other, utterly amazed at what had transpired. No angry looks at one brother who is favored, just feasting, drinking, and merriment. Our text doesn't say how the banquet came to an end, but given the fact that no mention is made of anything else, well, we have to assume that the banquet was a smashing success. The brothers are assured that they can buy grain. No mention is now made of their being spies. No more concern that the Lord of the land is going to drag them off into slavery. There's no concern for their brother. Where they once were overwhelmed with fears, they now encounter only grace. And it is important to reflect on this amazing scene that that Moses has described to us. I mean, consider the entire chapter. When Jacob finally consented to allow the brothers to take Benjamin along with them, not knowing if he would ever see Benjamin again, or for that matter, any of his sons. I mean, back in chapter 43, verse 14, Jacob had said, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. (laughs) Well, indeed, it had come about even as Jacob had prayed, except it came about in greater abundance than they had ever dreamt. Mercy. How could they now tell their father that, yeah, they had received mercy all right? It came as mercy in such abundance that in a world that was racked with famine and scarcity, where hunger was everywhere, they had ate and drank in a banquet that was fit only for a king. (laughs) Now go forward to Genesis 43, verse 23. Remember that passage? The brothers were at that time terrified. Were they being brought to Joseph's house in order to be killed? And you remember the response of the steward. Remember, he said, your God and the God of your father has put treasure into your sacks. Well, now, that was not only true, but it was a far greater treasure than they could have then imagined. And then on to verse 29, the words that Joseph spoke to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. And now on this day, had God been gracious to not only Benjamin, but he had been gracious to them all. 
It's time, don't you think, to just step back and to consider the banqueting hall of God's grace. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That is to say, the banquet that God has prepared for his people, well, it's far more than you've ever imagined. Or think, if you will, of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Or reflect on Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or would you even think of Christ's own words recorded in John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Well, put it all together and you'll begin to grasp the picture. Just how big, just how lavish, just how rich are the things that God is preparing for those who belong to him? How lavish are his rooms? How great is his salvation? How lavish is his banqueting table? How rich is his grace? I know you and I merit none of this. Indeed, like Joseph's brothers, we worry that the Lord of eternity will remember our sins and rightfully condemn us to his eternal dungeon. For surely, it's what we deserve. But the one who is altogether righteous has, in his great love, sent us his Son. He has suffered and bled and died for us, so that the riches of the ages to come would be our inheritance. You cling to this, my brother and sister. Do not flee from the God who loves you, thinking that he couldn't possibly bless you. His blessings are greater than you have imagined. John, is it hard for us sometimes to wrap our heads around the fact that that God is actually blessing people and uh, maybe they don't deserve it? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure, Ben, they don't deserve it. Uh, neither do you and I, I guess, right? I'm, I'm sure. This lavishness of our God, this God who has given to us not just what we don't ask, at, what we don't deserve, uh, but he has given us so much beyond, so much... So, so absolutely lavishly. I mean, there's just what is to explain the extravagance of our God. In the end, I don't know that anything is. And we must come to terms with a God who loves to give, to bless. And what a joy it is to be the recipient of that. I, there's no other picture we get. It's got to be that picture from this passage. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca.